0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. We come today to Luke chapter 2, and that means we're coming to one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible. We come back to it over and over again, pretty consistently every year in December, and to most of us, it's very beautiful. And it's very emotional. And I think God intends for it to be emotional to us. To some of us, it probably brings back memories of reading the Christmas story out loud with our kids many, many years ago, maybe. Vicky and I started a tradition reading the Christmas story, including this, when our boys were very young. And now, of course, we continue it with our grandchildren. But, of course, we got to see it as more than just a sweet kind of a sentimental emotional story that we try to reenact every Christmas in nativity sets and nativity plays and dramatic and musical presentations. All that's beautiful and wonderful, and we love it. But we've got to keep reminding ourselves it's more than just a sentimental, beautiful story. It's an historical account. These are things that really happened. We're talking about actual history. And it's kind of amazing how God engineered things throughout history to bring about this chapter in God's word, the events in this chapter, the birth of Jesus. It's an amazing demonstration of God just kind of letting the whole world know that he and only he controls history. He set the stage for the prophets that lived hundreds of years before this and caused those guys to be born. And he engineered their lives, and then he spoke through them words of prophecy. like I'm talking about men like Micah and Isaiah and others. and, and And he engineered the rise and fall of empires all around Israel, including the Roman Empire, and the rise and fall of men like Caesar Augustus to accomplish his incredible, glorious purpose. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Corinthians was governor of Syria. And once again, we've pointed this out every Sunday, I think, since we started studying Luke, we find this very meticulous, detailed medical doctor, historian, Luke, anchoring what he's about to write in historical facts. Never, never, never this long, long ago, far, far away, there happened to be, or there was a king or some such thing as, no, this is history, anchored in history, not some fanciful myth, not some interesting storytelling, not fiction. Almost exactly 100 years before Jesus was born, another man was born who would become a notorious historical figure. His name was Gaius Julius Caesar. And at the time of his birth, Rome was already becoming very strong. It was not ruled by a dictator at that point in time. It it was an early form of a democratic republic. Actually, they had a very powerful Senate, although it was certainly true that there were a few very powerful families who controlled almost everything, made most of the decision, but they did have a Senate and it was important. It made decisions. <laughs> but in time, Julius became a very successful general in the Roman army. And eventually around 60 B.C., he and two other very powerful and wealthy Roman generals, Crassus and Pompey, formed a kind of informal pact together that was designed to control how decisions would be made in Rome. Well, Crassus died in 53 B.C., so he kind of went off the scene. And there was a power struggle after that between Caesar and Pompey. Of course, Caesar finally decisively defeated Pompey. That was in 48 B.C., and he became essentially the dictator now of Rome. The Roman Republic was pretty much gone by this point. It was now pretty much the Roman Empire The Senate was still there. It never totally went away, but his power was gone for all practical purposes. Well, in 45 B.C., Julius Caesar adopted his grandnephew, Gaius Octavius, to be his primary heir after he had noticed Octavius' leadership potential. So Gaius Octavius became the son of Julius Caesar. He was 19 at the time. One year later, Julius Caesar was assassinated. So young 20-year-old Gaius Octavius immediately began to form an alliance with two other Roman generals. One of them was Mark Anthony. The other was Marcus Lepidus. In order to defeat Brutus and Cassius, who were the assassins of his adopted father, Julius. And of course, they did defeat Brutus and Cassius. After that, though, there was a long power struggle between Mark Anthony and Gaius Octavius to see who really would hold the power. And Gaius Octavius finally defeated Mark Anthony in 30 BC and became the supreme ruler of Rome. Three years later, in 27 BC, Gaius Octavius made a pretense of restoring power to the Roman Senate, but it was still just a sham. In truth, he was really now the Roman emperor. And he took a new name for himself, Augustus. At the time, the name Augustus was considered to be a symbol of his religious authority more than his political authority, but of course he wanted both. And by 12 B.C., he had taken the title of Pontifex Maximus, which meant highest priest. Actually, Julius Caesar already claimed this title for himself back in 67 B.C. after he claimed to be a descendant of the goddess Venus. In 42 B.C., That would be two years after his death. The Roman Senate announced that Julius Caesar was actually more than a mere man. He was a god. And then, because Gaius Octavius was Julius's adopted son, the man we call Caesar Augustus, he took for himself a new title, Divi Filius, which is Latin for son of God. Son of God, Caesar Augustus. Well, he finally died in 14 AD. That would be when Jesus was probably about 19 years old. Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius. Tiberius was the emperor during Jesus' earthly ministry. We see his name in the New Testament. And Tiberius continued for the first few years of the growth of the early church. He finally died in 37 AD, and he was succeeded by Caligula, who died in 41 AD. Caligula was succeeded by Claudius. His name shows up in Acts. He died in 54 AD. He was succeeded by the horrific and infamous Emperor Nero. Nero died in 68 AD, shortly after beheading Paul and crucifying Peter upside down and putting to death many, many other Christians during that period of time. By the time of Nero's death, almost all our New Testament had been written down. The only exceptions were probably 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. But... The influence of Caesar Augustus was lasting and very powerful. With his military power, he was able to quieten down the frontiers and institute what we call the Pax Romana. It's been called that for centuries, the Roman peace, which pretty much ended the internal civil wars within the empire. Until the Pax Romana, Rome had been in pretty much a state of constant warfare. Augustus persuaded the people, he said, listen, We need to stop the wars. This empire is going to be better off, and you'll have more prosperity with peace. And so he established the Pax Romana. And future emperors followed his lead. He set the pace, but they all followed his lead. So that Pax Romana lasted for 200 years. Amazing. Augustus also constructed and maintained an incredible system of Roman roads. And that Roman peace and that amazing system of Roman roads was part of God's providence. God was engineering all of this. They didn't realize it, of course, but they were instruments in God's hands, Caesar Augustus in particular, that made it possible for Christianity to spread so rapidly across the empire. So, you know, you have to think about all this. Most of us Christians are very keenly aware of how God used John the Baptist, for example, because he tells us that in his word to prepare the way, to prepare the way for Jesus. He preached repentance and he introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we know John the Baptist prepared the way, but we often don't think about the fact that God used Caesar Augustus to prepare the way for Jesus too. He's using all kinds of circumstances there. And so God used Caesar Augustus to make it possible for those early Christians to take the good news about Jesus all over the empire in an amazingly short period of time. When Luke first wrote these words down that we call the Gospel of Luke that we're studying now, Augustus had been dead by that time for about 40 years, but everyone would have known about the amazing reign and amazing influence of this great man, Caesar Augustus, even though Caesar Augustus had no idea he was such an instrument in God's hands. So Augustus ordered a census, and the census was taken all over the empire in order to set up a system for taxation. He realized he needed money to keep the empire going, and this is the way he set about getting it. Quirinius governed Syria until about 12 years after the birth of Jesus. So this is all anchored in history. Verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, we don't really know if Augustus ordered that they had to go to their hometowns or whether he just ordered that the census had to be taken for taxation purposes. He might have allowed his provincial leaders to kind of organize how it would be done. Herod might have decided that people should go to the towns of their ancestors, and that's possibly because he knew all the family records would be there and it would make it easier to do the census. I don't know. In any case, there would be some advantages of going to your hometown because you'd get to be with some relatives you probably didn't see very often. Maybe you had never seen them, and you'd get to be with relatives. That would be a pleasant and fun thing for most of those people. But there were some huge disadvantages, too. It would have been a difficult trip for a lot of them. And, of course, the expense could be pretty tough for poor people like Mary and Joseph. But verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This was not an easy trip for Joseph and Mary. It would have taken several days. It would have been about an 80-mile trip. Here's a map of the possible route they might have taken. We don't know it for sure, of course, but it seems likely they would have crossed over the Jordan River to make the trip. That's what Jews usually did in those days, partly to avoid going through Samaria, of course, and partly to enjoy traveling along the Jordan River, which is probably more pleasant. But they would finally have come down to the city of Jericho, Jericho is located in the Jordan Valley, about 800 feet below sea level. It's a city with the lowest elevation in the world. And that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem would have been about 18 miles altogether and would have had an altitude increase of about 2,500 feet. That would be a very difficult trip, especially for a young pregnant woman. But when we think about Bethlehem, there's kind of a powerful, deep emotional response to this passage of scripture and to the town of Bethlehem itself. Part of that has to do, I think, with the emotions of the songs. You know, we have songs about old little town of Bethlehem and, and dramatic presentations and paintings we've seen and heard through the years at Christmas time. But part of it has to do with the actual history of Bethlehem. It seems that God chose to work a lot of emotion into this little town. There's a lot of emotion associated with Bethlehem from the very beginning. The first time we find its name in the Bible is right after God had appeared to Jacob at Bethel. You may remember that God renewed the covenant with Jacob that he had made with his father Isaac and with his grandfather Abraham. God renewed that covenant with, with Jacob there at Bethel. And Jacob, that was a spiritual high for Jacob. I mean, probably an emotional experience in and of itself. And he'd set up a pillar there at Bethel to commemorate the fact that the Lord appeared to him there and renewed his covenant with him there. He wanted it to be a memorial. Well, immediately after that high emotional moment in Bethel, in Jacob's life, Jacob proceeded from Bethel with his family toward Bethlehem, which, by the way, also had another name. It was called Ephrath or Ephrathah. And as they approached Bethlehem, Rachel, remember Rachel's the woman Jacob loved with such intensity. Remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? Well, she went into labor about to deliver Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. But the delivery was too much for her, and she died in childbirth. So Jacob's emotions are high, and then they plunge to the depths, high of Bethel, high of his beloved Rachel giving birth to his youngest son. And now she's gone. And he buries her there just outside Bethlehem. That was about 1,900 years before Jesus was born. So already it's a place of great emotion. I mean, when the descendants would go by there, this is where Rachel is buried. And they would would remember what happened. Well, about 800 years after the death of Rachel and her burial there at Bethlehem, there was another very emotion-filled event that happened there in Bethlehem, only this one's a lot more positive. It's according to the book of Ruth. Bethlehem's a town where the great love story between Ruth and Boaz takes place. Of course, they eventually are married. And Bethlehem's the place where they had a son named Obed. And Obed grew up there in Bethlehem and married, and he had a son named Jesse. And Jesse grew up there also in Bethlehem and married and had a son. And he named his son, That's many sons, of course, but his youngest was named David. <laughs> David. And David grew up there and eventually became the greatest king of Israel until the Messiah came. He was so great that his hometown, Bethlehem, got another name. <laughs> it was called the City of David which is a little confusing, by the way, because there's a sector in Jerusalem, the Mount Zion sector in the city of Jerusalem, that was also called the city of David because that's where David set up his throne. Well, about 250 years after the death of King David, God raised up a prophet named Micah. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They lived at the same time, around 700 years before Jesus was born. And God caused Micah to write down this prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So this is an amazing prophecy. Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And to make sure we know who he's talking about, he adds, he's not only going to be born in Bethlehem, he's the one who exists from eternity past. More than just a mere man. (laughs) He's the Messiah. He's God come in the flesh. And because of that last part of the verse is going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity, the Jews understood this had to be a prophecy of the Messiah. This is not a mere ordinary ruler. He's talking about the Messiah. And 700 years later, when Jesus was born there, you remember the Magi's search for him led them to Herod's palace. And after they left, Herod asked his Bible experts, the chief priests and the scribes, where they expected the Messiah to be born. And of course, his Bible experts told him, said, we know exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We have a prophet, Micah. He told us all about that. We know. Let's read what happened there in Matthew 2, verse 4. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Israel. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you, I'm sure, remember the rest of that story. God sent an angel to warn Joseph to take Mary and Jesus out of Bethlehem to Egypt. And Herod, King Herod, as paranoid as he was and full of furious and irrational anger that some two-year-old might pose a threat to his throne, ordered all the boy babies in Bethlehem under two to be killed. Again, a place of deep emotion. So, the death of Rachel, the birth of Benjamin just after the spiritual high at Bethel, the romance and marriage of Ruth and Boaz and the birth of their son and grandson and great-grandson David <laughs> and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ that had been prophesied to happen right there in Bethlehem 700 years before it happened, and the horrible slaughter of all those innocent children by Herod. It just seems that God intended for the town of Bethlehem to be a place that would draw out our most intense emotions. And this is the most powerful of all. <laughs> verse 6. And while they were there, The time came for her, while they were there in Bethlehem, where they were supposed to be, where they were prophesied to be, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke has an amazing way of understating the greatest events of history. And she gave birth. (laughs) Verse 7. we get to chapter 23, we find Luke writing, and When they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. Just a simple statement. And in Luke 24, we find the women going to the tomb of Jesus, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. He just states it. He's writing about the greatest events in the history of the world. (laughs) He could have been much more dramatic. He could have built the drama if he wanted to. But he just lets these incredible truths, these incredible facts, speak for themselves. She gave birth. There they crucified him. Found the stone rolled, rolled away. Well, Luke tells us that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths. Babies were more commonly swaddled in ancient times than they are now. The idea behind swaddling is to wrap the baby in cloths not too tight, but tightly enough to keep the baby calm and help the baby sleep better. By the way, the Greek words here seem to imply that the swaddling claws were simply torn pieces of cloth. And, of course, Jesus' first bed is a simple feeding trough for animals. Later, Jesus would remind one of his would-be followers, remember this, that he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Luke chapter 9. Luke tells us in verse 24 of this chapter that we're studying that Mary and Joseph offered two birds at her purification after circumcision. This means they were poor. In in, in Leviticus chapter 12, God gave Israel instructions for purification, offering after the birth of a child. It's supposed to be a lamb. But in verse 8, he says, she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. That's what Mary offered. She couldn't afford a lamb, even though she was carrying the Lamb of God in her arms. What's God doing here? We, we need to understand this. It's very important. God had chosen poor people in poor circumstances to bring a Messiah into the world. That's the way God works over and over again. Paul would write this a little later. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave us a perfect example of what our attitude has to be about earthly riches. Jesus did not lay up for himself treasures on earth. (laughs) And, of course, he urged us to follow his example. He told us very specifically, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He knew that greed would be a common temptation for men. He knew that money would tend to give men a false sense of security. The temptation to be greedy is a large part of what drives the success of so many prosperity gospel preachers and some other preachers too, And, and they can make a God out of money. And they go in exactly the opposite direction of the example set by Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. He's so clear. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord's made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And again, this is the kind of historical record that makes us do a double take. Shepherds? Really? The least prestigious job in Israel? These guys were not even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. I mean, come on. The Messiah's come. Surely we can do better than shepherds, can't we? I mean, why not announce it to the court at Caesar's palace? Or at least to the Jewish Sanhedrin? (laughs) No. No, God has no intentions of feeding the pride and glory of men who are already filled with this pride and self-righteousness. It reminds us of how he showed himself after his resurrection. You remember? He didn't rise from the dead and immediately appear in Caesar's palace or or even to the Sanhedrin to a group of simple, faithful women and then later to simple, faithful men, (laughs) Paul amplified this in his first letter to the Corinthians. Such an important passage. He said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not Why?" to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then when God does call a person that we in the world might say, well, man, they seem to be really worthy. They seem to be really significant. Maybe they're a celebrity or something, a person with a lot of power or money or influence, whatever. That person, if God does call them, and he does call people like that, but you know what they have to do? (laughs) They have to do exactly what Paul had to do. They have to realize that his or her celebrity or his or her strengths are of no use whatsoever to God. He's getting away. Paul gives us the details of how he learned that lesson in 2 Corinthians. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. (laughs) Paul emphasizes it this way to the Philippians. He's talking about the same kind of thing. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He understood it. He got it. He had a lot of celebrity. He had a lot of power and influence. He had to renounce it. God is just not interested in feeding men's pride and ego. God's not interested in our standing or our prestige or our human influence. In fact, God is very much interested in tearing it down. We and the whole world, if we come to Christ, have to realize to the depths of our being that we really have nothing to offer. Apart from Him, we're nothing. We can do nothing. He's God. He, and only He, has all the wealth and the power and the wisdom and the love that we need. (laughs) He wants us to realize that. He wants us to realize that He chooses to work through what we call weakness and poverty. And that way, it's clear to everybody that God's the one doing it. He gets the glory. Not some puny little man who might be puffed up with himself because some other people admire his puny wealth or his puny power. No. no. God should get the glory. So, to these humble men... Shepherds, God announces the birth of Jesus. And this is an amazingly glorious announcement. God sends angels, (laughs) lots of them. (laughs) It it reminds us of what God allowed John to see. Remember when John wrote Revelation? God said, come up here. I want to show you something. And he brought him into the very presence of his throne in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, John writes, Then I looked, and I heard round the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, number of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. (laughs) And and here we are at the birth of Jesus. And God sent those very angels to a bunch of humble shepherds out in the fields, just outside the town of Bethlehem. So those shepherds could witness with their own eyes, this awesome heavenly worship of God, God, by the angels that he had created. <laughs> it's amazing. And did you notice how the angel described Jesus? Very important. Unto uh, you, is born this day in the city of David. What? Who? A Savior. A Savior who is Christ, the Lord. A Savior. You may remember the angel had told Joseph to name him Jesus. Why? He said, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. He's the Savior. That's the first word the angel uses to describe Jesus to the shepherds. He's the Savior. Now, guys, let's, let's try to be honest here about this for a minute. Do you realize how hard Satan is working in our day to convince people that they don't need a Savior? It's true, God's created every human being in His image. We are all, each of us, all of us created in the image of God. We are each unique. God has an incredible purpose for each of us, an incredible future for each one of us. But listen, we we just must never forget this. And we've got to teach it to our kids. Our sin has messed everything up. We need a Savior. We need to be saved from our sins and the consequences of our sins. But the world doesn't like that kind of thinking. (laughs) The world has written God right out of its script. And in his place, the people of the world have exalted themselves. And so the world has established a system that's designed, they think, to help people succeed and prosper in life. It's called the self-esteem movement. And many, many kids for decades now have been told by their parents, by their grandparents, by their teachers, by their television sets, <laughs> their social media. They've been told, you are awesome, just as you are. You can do anything you want to do. You're wonderful. You're super. You're incredible. But they lead Jesus out of it. They leave Jesus out of the conversation. <laughs> And so after having their self-esteem boosted to the heavens year after year after year after year, many of them hear the words, Jesus came to be your Savior. And they think, what? Why on earth would I need a Savior? I have no need of a Savior. I'm already good. I'm already wonderful. I've been told that all my life. I'm wonderful just like I am. The world lies at my feet. I'm its conqueror. It's all because I'm so great. Savior? Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Listen, guys, when we try to build kids' self esteem while leaving God out of the picture, which is exactly what's happening in our public schools, I promise you, we tend to produce two kinds of kids. There's one set of kids who just eat it up, they love it, they believe every word of it, and they're stuck on themselves. They turn out to be arrogant jerks. The world's rotating around them, they're full of themselves. Full of self confidence, full of pride. And the world feeds that and encourages it. Now, there's another set of kids that they try, they try to believe the hype, the self esteem hype, but they fail and they keep failing and they know they're failing. And so what they decide is, I I can't live up to these expectations. And they conclude they're nothing but abject failures, that they can't do anything right, they're never going to amount to anything, and those kids often wind up feeling totally worthless. doesn't work on them. Well, to the first group, the arrogant ones, God says, you are so wrong. Your pride is disgusting to God. Your pride is going to lead to great destruction. You must repent of that pride. Now, it's as if God's saying, It's true, I can, I can do great things through you. I can do wonderful things through you. But it's not because you're great, kids. It's not because you're wonderful. You must die to that self-righteous nonsense. You must learn to trust me. That's what Paul had to do. To that second group of kids, the one who feel the ones who actually feel like failures, God says, Well, <laughs> You're kind of headed in the right direction there because it's really true. Without me, you really will be a total abject failure. But if you will turn your life over to me, repent and trust Jesus, you too can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, and you can enjoy the incredible future I plan for you. I've got an awesome future for you. You may think you're a failure, but I can do amazing things. So you'll be amazed at what I can do with your life. It'll bring me a lot of glory. It'll bring you a lot of joy. But... We've got to keep God at the center of everything. We don't need to build our kids' and grandkids' self-esteem. We need to build their Christ-esteem. You see what I'm saying? We need to help them see that in Jesus, and only in Jesus, they have an awesome future. God does have some awesome plans for them. He is going to do some awesome things through them. He's got an awesome purpose for them. But he's the one who's going to be doing the work through them, not them of their own strength. It won't be them. It'll be God. He gets the glory, not them, not us. We're all weak vessels. He's a great God. But he's really, really good at taking weak vessels and doing some amazing things through them. But he gets the glory. Starts with the good news that the shepherds heard the angel deliver. Unto you is born a what? A Savior. And we desperately need a Savior. We need to help other people see. They need a Savior too. And I know, guys, that's not easy in our modern secular world. I think it's a matter of a lot of prayer. One of the main prayers we need to be praying for our friends and our families is that they'll be able to see their need for a Savior. That they'll recognize their sin. They'll be able to see sin like God sees sin, to be able to realize how destructive it is, how deadly it is, how poisonous it is, how big it is, and, and be able to realize they can't fix it. They need a Savior. And that Savior can only be Jesus. So the shepherds learn that right off the bat. The Savior's been born. <laughs> they also learn He's the Christ, Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one the one to whom all those kings and priests and prophets of the Old Testament pointed to. He's the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the prophet, ultimate prophet, (laughs) the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And, of course, they say he's the Lord. He's the master. He's actually God come in the flesh. So the first thing that happens to these guys, (laughs) in a shocking and magnificent way, an angel appears and announces his birth. Incredible announcement, incredible moment. Their hearts have to be hammering. (laughs) But then (laughs) they get to witness this multitude of angels praising and worshiping God. And in the process, you know what's happening? Not only are they being blown away by the glory of God, but these angels are providing a model for those shepherds. You don't have to be an angel to praise and worship our creator. You you can do it too. We can do it too. This is the way to do it. So the the shepherds got to see it modeled. (laughs) And then what? Angels just disappear. Their mission's been accomplished. They're gone. Now what? Well, they go find Jesus. (laughs) They immediately go find Jesus. And and again, they're just totally overwhelmed by all of this. They've gotten the news from an actual angel, from God. They've actually been privileged to hear a multitude of these heavenly angels praising God. And finally, there he is. They're looking at him. And it's just as the angel said, He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. That probably wouldn't have been too unusual, but, but he's lying there in a manger of all places, just like the angel said. And that part's very unusual. This is the Savior. We see the Savior. We, we're looking at the Messiah, the Lord. So now what? What do they do next? Well, they start telling folks, hey, guys, listen, you have to know about this. Verse 20 says they also started praising and glorifying God. They are imitating those angels. And it's just so fitting. Here are the simple men who tended the lambs out in the field. These, by the way, were the lambs who would eventually be sacrificed, you realize, down at the temple just a few miles down the road in Jerusalem. All those lambs would be sacrificed to point to the ultimate Lamb of God. And here are these men. God honors them by sending them right to Jesus. It's as if God's saying to them, men... You've been faithful to me in doing a very mundane but very important job. You've been taking care of my little sacrificial lambs. All those lambs have been pointing to a Savior. Well, here he is, the Lamb of God. You get to be the first to worship him. (laughs) Awesome moment. Now I want us to meditate just a little bit about their response. They were privileged to see something amazing. God sent angels to them to announce the birth of the Savior. They got to actually see the Savior with their own eyes. And now they're just overflowing with this excitement and joy and this wonder of what's what's happening to them. They've got something they just have to share. (laughs) They want people to know what happened. And, of course, they're a model for us, guys. I think God wants us to be so amazed at what He's done in our lives that we want people to know about it just as badly as those shepherds did. But listen, let's admit it. Let's be honest here. We're in an enormous battle right at this point. Satan and the world around us are trying very hard to take the edge off the excitement. They're trying hard to, you remember that old aphorism, familiarity breeds contempt? Yeah, Satan would love to cause that to happen with people's, understanding and knowledge of jesus so if we try to talk about jesus to some people you know what their process is it's something like this jesus oh yeah 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 yeah. i know about jesus yeah i know that story yeah yeah i know he died on the cross yeah yeah you know all about that by the way what's on tv tonight (laughs) you see the disconnect the world wants us to make this account into a nice little subjective story that we christians choose to cling to but which they, for the most part, feel like they've kind of outgrown. Maybe a nice little story, kind of sentimental, but, you know, there are other things more important in their minds. One of my hopes for the Veritas videos is that kids and adults, people in general, would watch them and say, Whoa, this is amazing. Look at all this evidence that God's left that points us so clearly to Him. It's amazing. This is astounding. I'd love for those videos to cause people to be just as astounded at what God has done as those shepherds were. Amazing. It's amazing. It's astounding. And so often there's this terrible disconnect. And a lot of people, when I talk to them about the Veritas videos, they okay, it's unique. <laughs> they still have time to watch them. And a lot of people think, eh, I've heard all that stuff. You know, there's nothing special there. I know Steve. <laughs> Everybody always knows this stuff. You know, I got other things. I just think we've got to put a lot of prayer into this. We people cannot cause people to f- feel that sense of excitement and, and exuberance that those shepherds. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would do this in their hearts. Luke tells us in verse 18 that all who heard it, all, all who heard what the shepherds were sharing, he uses the word wondered, wondered at what the shepherds told them. They marveled. The Greek word wonder here is thomazo. It's used quite a bit in the New Testament, 46 other places besides here. It means to marvel at or to admire greatly or to be filled with wonder and amazement. Uh, Let me share some examples of how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. This word is used in these places. It's what the men in the ship did when Jesus calmed the storm. Whoa, that's amazing. They were filled with wonder. It's what people did when Jesus told the paralyzed man, take up your bed and go home. Whoa, whoa, he has the power to do that. It's what they did when Jesus cast a demon out of a mute man. The man began to speak. They were filled with wonder. They were amazed. It's what the disciples did when they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed all withered up. Whoa, look at that. It's amazing. Look, It just withered up. <laughs> It's what Pilate did when Jesus refused to defend himself. He was filled with wonder at Jesus. It's what the disciples did when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them in a locked room and asked for something to eat. They were filled with wonder. It's amazing. It's what people did on the day of Pentecost when they heard the disciples speaking in languages. They they could understand it. Whoa, this is amazing. This is a miracle. What's going on here? You get the idea? That's what it means to be filled with wonder. It's what happened to the shepherds, and it's also what happened to the people when they heard the shepherds telling, giving their account of what had happened, their eyewitness account. They, they were filled with wonder. There is always a great danger that we and the people in our world will lose that sense of wonder. And God doesn't want us to lose it, guys. God wants us to maintain this sense of wonder at what he's done through Jesus. Both historically, yes, but continuously, and even now in our own lives, he wants us to have this sense of wonder at what he's doing all the time through the beauty of Jesus in our lives, in in the sons and daughters of God out there. He's working. He's doing marvelous things. They're created in his image and through his creation all around us, he's doing a marvelous things, and he wants us to look at these things and think about these things and meditate about these things and, and be filled with wonder and amazement. Satan will attack that sense of wonder. I guarantee it. He attacks it all the time, and we just need to be praying, oh, God, please help me not lose that sense of wonder. You remember Keith and Kristen Getty, don't you? They've written some awesome songs to help us worship. Well, they've written a beautiful song that expresses that very prayer to God. Don't let me lose my wonder. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to worship with that song before we stop today. And listen, if you happen to be listening to this study later on in an audio podcast, so you're not watching, you're just listening, it'd really be worth your time, I think, to find this video on our YouTube pages or or aboundingjoy.com just to watch this song. Okay, let's make this our prayer.
1: I've watched a spider spin a star between the window box flowers, I've heard you laugh and cry.
0: father that is our prayer thank you for including luke chapter 2 in your word causing luke to write it down just as he did to remind us of how you worked incredibly beautifully and in such an awesome way even through secular emperors and 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 through the history and through the prophets and 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 Lord, it's just amazing how you set everything up and caused the taxation to take place so that Mary and Joseph would have to make the difficult trip to Bethlehem where you prophesied Jesus would be born. Lord, it's amazing what you've done here. And thank you for the way you appeared and sent the angels so gloriously to those simple shepherds out there on the hillside watching those sacrificial lambs. Lord, thank you that you chose them. Thank you that you always choose weak things of this world, foolish things of this world, So that you get all the glory. Lord, you've worked in amazing, marvelous, beautiful, powerful ways in our lives and throughout history. So please don't let us lose the wonder. Lord, please don't let us be deceived by Satan and the world around us to make us yawn at things that ought to make us just be trembling with excitement. (laughs) Lord, you've done awesome things and you continue to do awesome things. So help us to be continually, for the rest of our lives, filled with a sense of wonder at what you've done. And we know it's all because of Jesus, and it's all for the glory of Jesus. So we offer ourselves to you. Use us as you see fit to bring joy and glory into into you and to people around us to bring Jesus so that they can see the truth and also begin to experience some of this um, incredible, amazing wonder as they see more clearly what you have done. Lord, I pray you'd open up blind eyes. We know we'd love to be able to force people to see these things, Lord, but we can't. So would you open blind eyes so that people can see you more clearly and give you praise and worship and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.